Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're back again with Bergman and Hitchcock, and we're just trying to get the right key so we can unlock the door to Notorious. I'm sorry to intrude on this tender scene. I, uh, I knew her before you did, loved her before you did. I wasn't as lucky as you. I'll take care of her myself. No, not of that way. I stood looking at her when she was asleep. I could have... Quiet, Alex. You are almost as impetuous as before your wedding. You barred me from that episode. Let me arrange this one. Before we get into keys, Pete, can I... Yeah. Um, this is a really important topical point for this conversation. What is up with the font for it's the not, title screen? Oh, God. What is up with the font, Andy? <laughs> There's nothing... <laughs> it's uh, thrilling or or psychologically terrorizing or horrifying about it. It is a bubbly, happy, uh, like a rom com font. What well, is it's up? Tilting, it's like tilting toward you, and maybe they were go- they thought that was threatening. Maybe it's is just it like a tilt. ghosts. It's ghosts. <laughs> it's ghosts, but it's not even a notorious ghost. This is decidedly the font of a friendly ghost. It's terrible. <laughs> It's terrible. I, I, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. This this film, we're going to talk uh, a lot about the movie, but I just had to start it off by like, what is that? Why? Yeah, why would why they do that? Are they starting like well, this, and and at the risk of you know just lampooning this terrible, terrible choice of fonts, what do you think in your in your best and most scholarly uh, approach to titling? Why would they have done this? I mean, do you have a perspective that you can share? Why would they have chosen this font? Yes. Why would they have you chosen? Know, there do you are have a always guess? eras for new fonts. Every font had a starting point. Maybe this was the starting point for this font, and and, <laughs> and Hitchcock said, "Oh, that looks lovely." <laughs> well, I, that just I, gave I, you an opportunity to do Hitchcock again. You Welcome did. back, Hitch. Uh, well, this is probably why we've avoided doing Hitchcock for so long, so we don't have to torture people with my Hitchcock impersonations. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, anyway, I'm, it is. I a, will it's tell a, you, this a, is gonna. This is gonna actually make you very excited. You can acquire the notorious font from dafont.com and it's called appropriately notorious the uh and it is available free for personal use. So if you want to write like notorious, you can do it. Thanks to defont.com. That always makes me uh, skeptical of the font when they call it the name that it is probably known for. Because yeah. <laughs> I doubt when they use the font in the movie that it was, it was called, called Notorious. notorious. No. And in <laughs> fact, Let's use it this font because it's called the same as our movie title. <laughs> wow, what, what are the odds? Well, and you can even tell it's not quite the font. It's close, but yeah. it's not it's not quite it uh, because, you know, probably copyrights and stuff but uh it, it it's approximate and funny yeah yeah 
It doesn't have the tilt. That's what bugs me because it's what you really want is the friendly, notorious tilt. You do need that, it, 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 but it's a tricky. It's a tricky tilt because every word is going to have to have its own like yeah. tilt. So the left end of the word is tilting to the left, and the right end of the word is tilting to the right. So it's got that like looming quality. Yes, and that yeah. that's going to require every letter to kind of change a little bit. One does We're not, spending way too much time talking. Yeah, about one the does font. not loom lightly. No, let me tell you the problem. I think the reason that the font is so shocking and so shockingly stupid in this movie is because the movie is so good. Would you agree? <laughs> the movie is so good. I love this, this movie. I had a blast watching this movie. I have, as you know, Pete, I have been going through all of Hitchcock's sound films from his British period all the way up to moving to Hollywood. And I slowed down just so I could time it with these two Ingrid Bergman films so that I could watch them with this series as we were doing it. And I have to say, this is, I think, the 22nd film that I've watched of Hitchcock's um, in, you know, recent months. And by far, this is my favorite. I feel like this is Hitchcock really clicking into what makes him kind of the, the Hitchcock that he's going to become. There is this psychological element to the characters that is really interesting and tortured and and fascinating the way that they play off of each other there is real smart uh and and uh, a, a solid understanding of the way to play with his camera and really do some interesting things to kind of help tell his story um the darkness the humor everything blended perfectly to make what i think so far is you know hitchcock's best film up to this point which is so surprising, especially coming off of last week and how I was not spellbound by by that film. Uh, I and I think, did there. I, do you see what I did? This is I think <laughs> this is going to be a conversation that might be full of them. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was not keen on it. And uh, it, it was a, such a surprise to sit down and look at how, uh, you know, how what this film resolved in terms of that, that threatening Hitchcockness, right? The suspenseful Hitchcockness that I have, like you said, like this is what he becomes, uh, the way it sets up the story so beautifully in such a short uh, span of screen time and leads us right into the banal day-to-day of our principal character as she's pouring drinks for her buddies and we we meet the mysterious stranger. I All of that is just fantastic for me. It just, it, it's just fantastic. Yeah, you're you're talking about uh, the introduction of Ingrid Bergman, um, who is, is so perfect in this film, uh, to Cary Grant, who is the mysterious Devlin. And what an introduction. The fact that Hitchcock introduces him by showing us a silhouette, basically, of the back of him, the back of his head at this party. And we don't even, we don't hear from him. There's there's no sense that this is our leading man. It's so brilliantly executed because it, it kind of creates this shadowy figure that becomes a, a key part of her life. It's beautifully done and very intriguing the way that he chooses to do it because it's not what you would expect for kind of a typical leading man at the time. The fact that we are introduced to him through the back of his head speaks to kind of the way that Hitchcock uh, would uh, would work with his actors to create these moments that allowed for you know, not the Hollywood norm. And I think that this is the sort of thing that Hitchcock would become known for that allowed or that uh, actors would uh, be excited to work with him because he would make these choices. And 
this, you know, Hitchcock is notorious for kind of being very, I don't want to say dictatorial, but he had a vision and he stuck to it. And, uh, you know, I think there were times when that made it more difficult for certain actors than other times. I think in this particular case, he found the right team of actors to work with that made everything play to everybody's advantage. Let's uh, let's start with our uh, opening title sequence, uh, because we once we get through all of the opening credits, the litany of opening credits, we get to uh, an opening title screen that just gives us essentially a date and time plate. What's the significance of that? You know, it's it's an odd thing. And it really is interesting when you kind of evaluate exactly what they're doing and why. It's designed not in the 1.33 to 1 aspect ratio, the typical film aspect ratio. It's actually brought in as if it's old newsreel footage. And you kind of have that kind of much smaller frame that's kind of soft around the edges. And then we slowly push into it. But um, so it's designed already to kind of have a newsish sort of feel to it. But then it gives us some some very specific dates, which is an I mean, Hitchcock certainly would employ that later um, in his films. And it's a film. It's, it's a technique that other filmmakers have played around with. We've talked about Brazil on the show. Terry Gilliam kind of throws that in into Brazil, which is really fun, you know, tea time or whatever it is. Um, here we have Miami, Florida, 3.20 p.m., April 24th, 1946. This is letting the audience know, I mean, we are very current to the time that this is being released. This, this movie is released August 1946. April 1946 is a, kind of a big moment because the Nuremberg trials are just getting underway. And this is, you know, the end of World War II. And here we are starting to process what's been going on and dealing with these wartime criminals and actually putting them through trials to figure out uh, kind of the levels of guilt for all the people involved um, on the side of the Nazis. And this is putting this story right in the middle of that, which works really well in context of a story about Nazi wartime criminals kind of hiding away from uh, from Germany. Totally. And it's it's uh, it's the one of the things I think most interesting is how we open on such an incredibly timely and important and significant, uh, you know, function, right? A trial of Nazis. In 1946. And it is all we get is, you know, from the back of their heads in this courtroom shot through a door. And I love the framing of that shot. Right. And otherwise, the significance of that is essentially wiped away. Right. It is it is we move so quickly into the story of the daughter of Bergman in this case that I find that such an interesting thing, the way he is and really deftly able to get us to stop caring immediately about the trial part, about the potential war crimes part, about uh, the stuff that immediately comes to mind when you think about the significance of this time, this period, and move straight into something else, the socialite, the how normal life is for her as she's pouring drinks for people. I, I find that um, uh, a, a expert turn. Not only that, but it gives us a really interesting psychological study of a person whose life has really been turned upside down by all of this tumult that has just been thrust into it. Here she was kind of a, a 
I don't know. I get the sense that she was a little bit of a, a, a already kind of with her father. They were, it felt kind of debutantes. You know, she seemed like a lady about town type of person uh, until her father. And, and she knows her father is up to no good. But uh, she, as we kind of get that conversation later when there, we hear the recording from Devlin, is that she was against her father. And, and that's the reason they come to her, because they believe that she will, she can play into the Nazis' hands while also being on the side of the Americans. But we get this sense that uh, this is a broken woman, and she seems very well-to-do, but at this party already, and this is the beginning of the film, she has this, this just complexity. And there is something going on about this this party, but she's, you know, really dark and sullen because of what's going on with her father. And and there's so much going on with her through so much of this film. I, I mean, I think this. I mean, we've had some some really terrific Ingrid Bergman performances so far, but wow, what she does here, the way she plays this character, it is really complex and really interesting to watch her uh, kind of go through the motions of this film. Well, you know, it's fascinatingly, and and it's a a performance that feels uh, like she was meant to play it, you know, yeah. and and the fact that her it, it's just everything was right here, her age, her accent, her demeanor, her uh, just the, the way she's able to to interact with Cary Grant, both sort of professionally, socially, romantically. I had no questions at all about their relationship together uh, in terms of that age difference we've been talking about with her and some of her other uh, leading men. Uh, That, for me, was just ancient history. You know, oh, what a difference a year makes. This was such an incredible performance compared to what we where we have come from yeah and, and i mean spellbound she was fine in spellbound like i i think that she delivered a really interesting performance for uh for uh, a role that they didn't always write to the the possible strengths they could have with that role which made it more frustrating this one i think is much more on par with what she delivered in gaslight where it was a really yeah. complex role of a woman who's trying to work through these these this situation and understand exactly what's going on very much similar here, but she she kind of knows what's going on, but she's just she's uh, you know frustrated by this situation. She has to basically wed this this former Nazi friend of her father's so that she can basically work for the the U.S. government and give them the information that they need. Meanwhile, dealing with this feeling of love that she has for Devlin and finding him to, for some reason, all of a sudden being very distant and everything. It's just so complex. And and there's such an there's a step up for Hitchcock, I think, going to a, a level that is it still is fun. But there's a level of kind of this adult psychology that he's exploring in a much stronger way in this film. And I think it is a marked point from here forward that we're going to see in a lot more of his films. I think before there was a lot more, I don't want to say black and white, I don't think that's right, but the the way that the characters were written was um, a little a little more narrow focused, which is fine. You get interesting characters still, but I don't think they had as much uh, kind of interesting kind of psychological layers to them. I think to that point specifically, I I think it's so it was surprising to me uh, 
just how believably petty they were in terms of their romantic attraction to one another in this movie. Does does that make sense? Is that does that relate? Do you relate to that statement? I'm not sure of the petty part. What do you mean? Well, the fact that they had this relationship that they both knew there there was an attraction, a romantic attraction, and yet they uh, weren't able to to sort of be honest with one another about it as she you know talks about other men and how you can add him to the list of my play things you know adding all of this it just sounded very much like uh like what people would say if they were in that situation and didn't know how to talk to one another it wasn't sure, particularly sure. cinematic it was high school pettiness that we are <laughs> all capable of when we are in relationships and we don't know how to talk and i yes. i actually found myself rather than like there's a real chance that you could watch this and and think this is ridiculous let's be adults but for some reason cary grant and Ingrid Bergman pull that off in a way that I find not only believable, but really kind of charming and uh, and and the way it resolves satisfying. Well, and I, I totally agree. I totally agree. There is, and, and I get what you're saying now. And what I think is so interesting is because it's Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman at this point in career in their careers where they're very popular, very successful actors, it makes for real heartbreak and real kind of uh, frustration as they're going through these moments and and you know that they love each other and uh, but they they keep closing these doors or they keep throwing these digs at each other because um because of the you know the complexity of the situation that they're unfortunately stuck in and and it it hurts. I don't know. It hurt my heart as I as they would say these things to each other. I'm like, no, you, you don't really feel that. Don't do that. But I, I, and that's why I find it such an interesting film. Film because these are people who really there's there's clearly something about them that works. And I, I think the casting obviously helps, and 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 finding these people to work so well together is critical. But I, and because they are such big actors, when they're having these issues, and they're people that we love so much, it really, I mean, I just I bought into everything, and it made all of the emotion that much stronger for me throughout. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Now there were some things that are particularly nineteen forty six ish. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've got a moment early in the film when she's drunk and she's uh, she's driving drunk. Um, he kind of lets her. This is um, at the party. They're out driving and she's driving like kind of a maniac. And, and he stops her after, well, a cop pulls them over and everything. He's trying to get her. He's trying to take over as the driver and stuff. And it's a little physically abusive. It's not exactly a good scene. Uh, granted, he's you know he's in the right trying to prevent the drunk woman from driving anymore but still you know basically beating her to get her out of the seat it's a little much uh to take it's uh it was that was a hard moment to watch as he's as he karate chops her fingers to get them off of the steering wheel <laughs> that was the low point for me when she started fighting back i didn't get the feeling that he was actively trying to harm her no, like it no, felt no. much more like a restraint situation but yeah. but the way he, I mean, it was just it. You're, it felt 1946y, uh, yeah. that where where that was still okay. I don't know. I I didn't believe that that was a that that would have necessarily have been a natural character 
move for him. It felt like a cultural move of the era. That's, uh, yeah, I suppose that's a good way to describe it. It does feel cultural and something that people, I mean, again, she's drunk. He's finally, you know, putting a stop to it and everything. I get it. But still, it feels uh, rough. It feels rough in today's eyes. Gross. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, we've got to talk about subjective camera in in this thing, um, and and because I want to bring it up now, particularly because I don't want to let this out of my head. The first POV shot of the film, I think, after we leave court, is when they're driving, and it cuts to a shot of her perspective as she's driving, and Hitchcock, he's so smart. He actually has her hair occluding the camera. (laughs) And I think that is brilliant because the next shot is a reverse shot on her through the dashboard. And you see her hair is right for blowing in her eyes. And then we cut back and we're looking through the 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 drive the windshield and we're in that POV mode again. There's hair and it's blowing in front of the camera. That's genius. When does that happen, Andy? When does that happen? I ask you. Well, it's better than uh, cat butt POVs, I guess. (laughs) I'm so glad Which he listeners brought that of up the this Saturday weekend. Monday yes. will will certainly understand that one. You yes. know, it's uh yeah, well, and not only that, but but I love that it actually becomes a point of conversation as she's like, "Oh, where did all this fog come from?" <laughs> before she realizes <laughs> that is her own hair. Uh, it's it's a great moment. And Hitchcock, uh, we talked about POV in the last film. Obviously, it was a key part of that film. But here we get it again. And what a what a nice kind of shift going to this where it's just a director who's becoming even more assured as he continues exploring with his uh, cinematic tools. In this case, after she wakes up from that night of drunkenness and she's uh, see, she sees Devlin in the doorway and he walks in and everything is askew. And as he kind of continues approaching her and passing her, the camera does this weird shift until all of a sudden he's upside down. Really fascinating way to kind of portray that. I loved that Hitchcock was allowing himself that freedom to move the camera like that. Well, and this is one of those beautiful things where that camera uh, became such a part of identity of the character it was representing, right? I mean, I, and I think that's part of the benefit of starting us off with that POV camera looking through her hair and the fog uh, because it it gives us that sense that that camera really is her. It's just it's not just what she's seeing. It is her. And that personification changes the way we see it next time. It changes the way when it's not so funny, when we're actually seeing something through her face that's dizzying. We actually are experiencing what she's experiencing, not just seeing what she's seeing. And I think that's a that's a subtle difference, but it's all the difference in in you know, how it gives us that emotional impact on the film. What What do you think? Yeah, about- you're talking specifically about the poisoning. Yes. So let's uh, talk about the poisoning then. Yeah, it's great the way that, uh, well, just, just speaking to the POV. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it, continuing that, that subjective camera 
as we are really in uh, Alicia's head as she's now being poisoned by her uh, her Nazi husband and his creepy mother. It's it's really uh, I mean, it's a, it's a trick we've seen in cinema time and time again when somebody is. And in fact, we talked about it on the Saturday matinee show that the different types of POV camera work and how there is this, you know, the 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 POV of somebody who is affected by something, whether it's drugs or alcohol or or getting knocked on the head or dizziness or whatever it may be. Um, this is a good example of kind of the poisoning where everything is kind of blurry and kind of out of focus and everything. But you're right. We've seen her POV enough throughout this film where we're getting a really good sense that when we're kind of in that mode with that camera, that we are feeling kind of Alicia's perspective. And it 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 allows us to really identify even that much more with this character. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the story and how it plays out, because this is, it's a little bit of a different kind of Hitchcock story. If you're thinking about Hitchcock and you think of Hitchcock as the, you know, psycho movie that's sort of the horror thriller. This is not that film. Um, this is uh, very much, uh, I, I think you could call it a, a political or suspense thriller. Oh, absolutely. And what's interesting about this particular suspense thriller is this is portraying the American government literally like right after the end of World War II in a way that is, I think, more complex than perhaps they the, the United States government would have liked to have been portrayed. This is portraying them as a government that it, it's not just the rah, rah, you know, let's go fight the Nazis and win and, and you know, John Wayne. Uh, every everything is um, all all stars and stripes, sort of hunky dory sort of thing. This is a much more adult, complex, adult political thriller where the good guys are basically convincing this woman to. I mean, they're they're using her. I mean, they they pretty much force her, I guess you could say, into this situation where she has to marry this Nazi. It is very kind of, we're not in the black and white world anymore. It's very gray as to the the methodologies behind our government as they go through this plotting and planning to uncover this uranium plot. It's such a, it's such a Hitchcock MacGuffin, this whole uranium ore plot that what's going on with these wine bottles um it's it's it just felt so hitchcockian when that came up as to what's actually in the <laughs> bottles but yeah I, I found it to be like this is 1946 this is like right after everything you know the nuremberg trials are going on and here we have this situation where uh you know the united states government it's not necessarily just the good guys there is some complexity to these decisions they're making Really interesting, I think. It It's a movie that says, you know what happened after the war? It got more complicated. The world yeah. got more complicated. And we're going to demonstrate that through the course of the relationships of these people and what we ask of each other to do uh, as a function of, you know, supporting our country and, uh, and, and the links that we will go and the costs of those links, uh, I, I think, are are apparent here. That, to me, is the cultural statement of this movie. It's not so much about, you know, I, I think your your point about the MacGuffin of the ore is great. Like, who who cares about the ore? What we really 
care about is what he has asked her and the American government has asked her to do. And when I say ask, I mean blackmailed, right? I mean, this is a this is that story. Uh, and it is told through through, I think, much greater subtlety than than certainly Hitchcock to date. It's yeah, it's a really interesting exploration of of this dark story. And I, I just I am really um happy to see that it came out the way it did especially because it began in such such a potentially uh, uh disruptive uh process because this was originally a Selznick production just and like Spellbound before it that yeah. the movies of Selznick and Hitchcock in particular are not controversial and great oh, no. thrillers erupt <laughs> from things like contract disputes, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, yeah, this was a Selznick project, but uh, he had been working on it with Hitchcock. And uh, this was this was a story. Hitchcock wanted to do this confidence, this a story about confidence tricks on a grand scale with Ingrid Bergman as the woman. And he said her training would be as elaborate as the training of a Matahari. And so they started kind of developing this based on a, I think it was a story in, oh, what was the, um, I can't remember what the story was, I, but they found a story in an old magazine. Oh, it's Saturday Evening Post. That's what it was. They found this story and, and Hitchcock, I mean, really, there's not a lot of connection from that story. It's almost like you could have the same credit that we got last time with Spellbound, the inspired by yeah, or right. suggested by. Suggested by, Right. Right. Um, but this, so this, uh, so Hitchcock started working on this and was working on uh, the script with Ben Hecht and Selznick was just buried. Uh, he was really focused on a different project that he was working on at the time. And because that project kind of was just kind of sucking up all of his time. I mean, it was just all of his time was going away. He was uh, really not able to, to focus on Notorious. And he finally hit this point where just financially he wasn't able to do it anymore. And he said, you know what, I'm going to sell this to RKO just to get some quick cash, which he did. And it turned into an RKO project. And because of that, and now, now Selznick still had 50% of the profit share. Um, he got paid handsomely for it, all of that sort of stuff. Because he still had 50%, he still felt like it was his right to write his memos. And he certainly did and tried to get a you know his hand in the casting and everywhere else he could. But this became the first film that Hitchcock really got to produce on his own in Hollywood. And it really ended up setting the stage for what a Hitchcock film would become and, and how they would be known. And I think that because of all of the way that this played out, it became that there are just so many reasons why this became the Hitchcock film that really set the stage for what we are going to see from Hitchcock over the next couple decades. The casting of this thing, you know, when you talk about their Selznick Hitchcock relationship, the casting, it sounds like was um, what's the word? Not easy. <laughs> well, at least it was with Bergman. We know we know that. We know Hitchcock that was a lot. And, right. Yeah. And she was already under contract with Selznick. So she was on board pretty easily. Now, when he went over to RKO, Selznick and, and I think initially, um, you know, Cary Grant was 
I think, I, I, I don't know if he was Hitchcock's choice, but Hitchcock had worked with him before. And so I think there was an easy relationship there. However, Selznick really wanted Joseph Cotton to be cast, who had also worked with Hitchcock before. Um, however, he was a uh, under contract with Selznick. And uh, I think I, I can't remember what the whole thing was, but but the atom bombs had just fallen. And so Selznick felt this whole MacGuffin of the uranium ore was very pertinent. And he wanted to make sure that this film was the first film that was out that dealt with atomic weaponry. And uh, but Cary Grant wasn't available. And so that was his big reason to kind of quote, push for Joseph Cotton, even though it was really just because it was his contract. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Hitchcock, this again, RKO now had it. And and RKO's uh, executive, uh, William Dozier, he kind of had a clause in the contract that said he can do what he wants. and, And Cary Grant was signed. And Hallelujah. I think it was great that they were cast. Now, now Selznick did push for Claude Rains to um to play the uh the heavy in this film. And luckily it was something that uh, Hitchcock was in favor with. Now he I think Hitchcock had wanted uh, somebody else to come in instead to play the role. But you know, I think in this particular case, Selznick kind of managed to sell everybody, and it wasn't a hard twist of the arm. I think everybody was like, you know, Claude Rains would be fine for this, and it, it, he ended up great. I mean, Claude Rains is so good in this film as the villain. I mean, just what an interesting, uh, sympathetic villain that we have here. I, I love the way that he plays. So I, I think this is just like really perfect casting from top to bottom. Well, it really is. And you talk about Claude Rains as the the sympathetic heavy, right? He is, uh, he's absolutely that. And that is uh, uh, just furthers that whole statement on complexity. The world is complex. And that's the thing that this movie gets right above all else. When you walk away from this movie and you actually feel for their marriage, which is a sham, uh, that is a, a triumph of, of this movie. It also lets us take a step back and talk about the kiss, the sexiest kiss since Fifty Shades. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. The Cary Grant Inger Bergman kiss. This was a controversial thing. You know, it's so funny. The production code and the rules that they had uh, instilled. And there was this silly rule that a kiss couldn't last longer than three seconds. Well, because everybody knows that after three seconds, you get pregnant. That's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> I, you know, it's just a bananas sort of thing. <laughs> and so Hitchcock wanted to uh, to kind of push the boundaries with that kiss. And so what he did is he devised an entire scene between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman where they were having a conversation, but they kissed through the entire conversation, which is about two and a half minutes long. And what he did is every three seconds, so basically they're kissing, but every three seconds he wanted to make sure that they interrupted the kiss to get some words out. And so it starts on the balcony. This is when they're down in Rio. It starts on the balcony and they're kissing and they're talking and they're kissing and they're talking. And then they kind of, they keep kissing and talking as they walk into the house and then walk to the door. And and the whole thing kind of plays out that way. And it's funny because the stars, both Bergman and Grant, both said it felt strange, it felt awkward, uh, nothing felt normal, and Hitchcock said, don't worry, it'll look right on the screen. 
And it does. It works so well. It's 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 really sexy. The way that it plays out, it's like this really kind of intense, you know, just you can feel this erotic love between these two. They they just cannot stop kissing, but they have this conversation. And I don't know, I I I found it to be such a fascinating way to direct this scene. I didn't know at the time when I was watching it about the 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 production code, but reading about it afterward, I'm like, oh, okay, so that's an interesting way to play the scene so that they could have a lot more um, uh, kissing on screen. And it works. It is really effective. It brings this kind of erotic passion out in their relationship. And, uh, and you know, he fought against the production code and got it through. Really interesting. It is interesting. It is unfortunate that uh, he was wrong and that she did get pregnant. This is wildly underreported. <laughs> it turns out the Hayes Code was right all along, and we all suffer for it today. She should have known better. <laughs> Oh, that's the next movie we're talking about. Pete. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. We we got to talk. Uh, we've got to talk a little bit about how, uh, uh, novel use, shall we say, of camera. Well, we've already talked about the POV stuff, and I mm-hmm. think that is very important uh, in the novel use of camera. But something else that uh, that Hitchcock does here is he has this beautiful, beautiful shot that starts, it's at the party. This is about midway through the film. This is a party at, uh, at Claude Rains's house, and everybody's there. It's a, it's a big night, uh, and the, the kind of start of the party uh, begins really up high above the crowds and everything. And then we boom down all the way from this, this wide, high shot all the way down. We keep going down, 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 down. We see Ingrid Bergman, and we're going down, down, down. We're going right to her back as she's kind of looking around watching people. And the camera goes right up to her hands. So it goes to this extreme close-up of her hands as you see this key that she's holding in her hand and kind of rolling around nervously in her hands, uh, this Unica key, which is kind of a key plot point. It is a beautiful shot. It actually reminds me quite a bit. Everybody talks about kind of the, the the strength of this shot, but I feel like Hitchcock had already been playing around with the shots like this. You could see it in, I believe, Young and Innocent, um, in which has another name. Both names for that film are just terrible, terrible names. Young and Innocent is such a dumb name, but it's another I one if where you, you can find the font Young and Innocent on defont.com. <laughs> 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 But Young and Innocent has a similar thing where you're going through a party and it's it's the couple and they're looking for a particular person. And the camera moves through this crowd of people and it goes to an extreme close-up of the drummer and then it goes right up to his eyes and, and you see him blinking his eyes madly, which is kind of this nervous twitch that he has. And that's the clue that they're looking for. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a technique that Hitchcock had played around with before. But even then, it was not as effective as it is here. It's just so just flawless in the way that he executes this from such a high angle all the way down. And again, Hitchcock is a director who really likes his high angles. And you're going to see that in much later Hitchcock films like uh, North by Northwest, where he really kind of plays that director as God, high 
angle types of shots, which he really does like to employ. And here you get this. It really feels that way, where the director, as God, is kind of descending from on high just to kind of show us, the audience, this this plot element. Beautifully done. I It is beautifully done, and even more so when you think about the technical accomplishment of actually doing this. Have you ever used a non-reflex camera? I have not. I have not. I have not either. And it was, it's stunning to me to think about that because, you know, I spend a lot of time behind my DSLR, right? The single lens reflex camera. And I spend exactly zero percent of that time behind the camera thinking about what DSLR actually means, that single lens reflex camera, because I don't need to worry about that because grandfathers and grandfathers before them have actually solved this problem. But what Hitchcock was dealing with at at this point uh, and what uh, uh, Ted Tetzlaff, uh, director of photography, were dealing with at this point is the fact that the lens is put in such a way on the camera that is separate from the viewfinder. So you look through the viewfinder and you get a rough idea of what you're shooting at. And then when you're ready to shoot, you've moved the viewfinder out of the way and it puts the lens in front of the film. So everything is off, right? And that creates a, a parallax, right? It's a, yeah, it's, right, it's right. a parallax to, to what between what you see and what you're actually shooting. And then you run the shot, right? You have no idea while you are shooting if you are shooting what you need to shoot, because everything, particularly from a high angle, uh, everything is going to be off by some percentage of what you thought it was going to be in the frame. So especially when you even get closer, it's exactly because like, then you have to make sure, OK, but by the time we get to our hand, we need to be like. Yeah, I don't know, an inch off or however far it is. Exactly. And you can kind of tell when they do that, because the, when it gets close to it, you can kind of tell the camera starts to adjust. It starts to pull back as they actually realize, oh, we're getting actually close to the key. Let's go ahead and pull over to the right uh, so that we land on the key. But it is a stunning shot. And I watched that shot and I started looking at what they were doing here on these reflex cam- or non-reflex cameras. And I wanted to hug a cameraman because this, <laughs> this is... Just go find one on the street. I'm telling you, they. I was full of love for the, the whole industry because this is magic. The, the problems that they were able to solve uh, and the shot that they were able to accomplish on a moving non-reflex camera is wizardry. This is something we've talked about, like in in films uh, that we've looked at in the past yeah. from these decades, where it's an era of this exploration with these tools. And and when we were talking about, uh, gosh, I can't remember which one was it. Um, I'm blanking on which one it was. It was one of John Huston's films, uh, but just just looking at how they were using the dolly in complex locations and how they were able to kind of pull off some of these shots that they that they did at the time on location, it was like incredibly complex, and they were like figuring it out on the fly, and that's exactly what they're doing here. It's it's so much work in order to accomplish what they're doing, yet they're doing it, and they're creating really magical moments in these films that to, by today's standards, I mean, this sort of shot, it's like I could probably get it, you know, just by, you know, going out with a drone and just kind of you know, get, a, yeah, get right. a shot of a drone coming down and, you know, the camera the lenses and the film or the digital technologies and everything, you you don't have to worry about the focus and everything. And, and it's, it's cake at the time. Like 
a shot like this, this is seriously complex. And the fact that Hitchcock had it in mind and was able to describe it to his team and get them to accomplish it with all the actors and everybody hitting their marks and everything. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. It is. It is. It is remarkable. It is the equivalent of like, I, I don't know, the 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 long shots in, you know, Casino or uh, following Roller sure. Girl, you know, I mean, the the number of pieces that have to be in place to make this shot work and the sheer just blind luck of being able to shoot it and develop it and see what you got and have it be what you intended it to be is um, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Tetzloff, uh, his cinematography throughout this film, I think it's, uh, it, you know, it's an interesting film because the bulk of it takes place in Brazil, yet the entire thing, other than plates, was shot in like on stages in mm-hmm. Hollywood. I think the only exterior that they actually shot was the horseback riding scene when they uh, when they force kind of uh, her to kind of bump into uh, Sebastian so that they can meet and uh, everything else was just all plates which i find really intriguing but in that context they do a great job of creating this this world where everything works and everything looks good and i think tetzloff's photography throughout the film he does a great job it's it works really nicely to kind of create this this noirish crime thriller look it's it's nicely done before we leave Let's talk about mom. Oh, mother. Yeah, this, you know, this was a beginning of a situation for Hitchcock that would pop up in his films a lot more later on. I think it's a, a theme that uh, became pretty prominent for Hitchcock. His own mother had died a few years before. This is really the first time when he's brought his own personal mother issues into kind of the film and, and this domineering mother, this this emasculating woman who really is controlling of Alex and the way that she kind of uh, pushes him to to start poisoning Alicia, all of that stuff. It's really it's an interesting, dark character. And we're going to see mother issues popping up in Psycho, in um, I'm trying to remember what else. I, there's, a, there's a mother in North by Northwest, um, the birds. It's, it's just something that is very much something that is a, a figure in Hitchcock's films, dealing with kind of his own uh, relationship issues that he had with his own mother. And I, I think that the way that uh, we have this performance here by Leopoldine Constantine. She's she's great. I mean, she's really interesting. This is her only um, English film that she had done. She was, I believe, a German star up through kind of like the war and everything and just didn't get many parts um, after that. And then she was uh, referred to Hitchcock um, by, I don't remember who, because he had been looking for other people to play her. And brought her in. And boy, I just think that she's she does a great job of playing this dark character. I loved her in the film. It's, it, you're absolutely right, though. I mean, I uh, was it's surprising to see her coming off of this film and having three listed TV credits on IMDb after this film. This is yeah. her last feature film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it it does remind me a little bit, though. I, it's it's hard to watch her performance here and not think a little bit of Cloris Leachman. Am I alone? You don't, you don't uh, get you any, in, any Frau, in look? Frau Blucher? 
<laughs> you know, it's funny. I didn't think that at all. What I actually thought of weirdly, um, but tying into Gaslight was uh, was Angela Lansbury from the Manchurian Canada. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, because again, a really domineering mother, yeah. and that's totally where I went with it. But it's funny that you say that because yours probably makes more sense, <laughs> at least look wise. Yeah, we got to talk about music, Andy. This is uh, you know your favorite Roy Webb. I know you're a big Roy Webhead. <laughs> the Webhead. <laughs> oh, good old Roy. You know, I actually really do enjoy. Uh, I mean, Roy Webb is, he's one of those composers who I think he was uh, a studio staple. Yes. I don't think he was necessarily known for, uh, you know, like, you know, being, you know, just a great composer or anything like that. But I do think uh, that his music in this particular film really captured just everything that that Hitchcock needed. It's just a beautiful score. It allows the kind of the mystery and the 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 suspense and everything and the romance to kind of all blend together, play well. We've talked about him a little bit on I, uh, out of the past, maybe the only time. Well, he's one we of those guys him. that, you know, you look at his credits. He wrote a boatload of stock music from 1930 yeah. to 1960, and he is uncredited on all of these things uh, in, until now posthumously and it's just his stuff was used in these movies I actually found this movie and this music to be uh, an exceptional relief uh, after the, the good score wrong movie last week great score exactly That's yeah, a it's great a great score, score. And I totally agree you're right I'm underselling how great that score is bad movie uh, pairing this I, I feel like worked really well for me I did not have any of those sort of jarring moments with this movie. I quite enjoyed it. No, it works beautifully. And I, this was one of those things where, uh, again, Hitchcock was pushing to get Bernard Herrmann, but he was still unavailable. And uh, Roy Webb, who, I mean, he was a, a fan of Herrmann's anyway. Um, he came on board to, to, he was the RKO staff composer, which is why he came on board. He had been doing a lot of stuff with Val Luton's projects. And so, you know, he, I think the darkness and the tone worked really well. And, and it sounds like from what I've read, it sounds like neither he nor Hitchcock had much affection for Selznick and, and kind of the the way that Selznick would push them to do things. And uh, Webb and Hitchcock had a great time coming up with the different themes for this. No no big love themes, no uh, kind of cliches that, that fit anywhere. They just really liked working together. And I, I tell you, I mean, it may not be up there with Psycho or North by Northwest or some of those scores, but I think this is, is really just a beautiful Hitchcock score. And I think there's a lot of great uh, pieces uh, throughout. So it's, it's definitely one to remember. Let me just ask you this, Andy. On the remakes, did they use the notorious font? <laughs> you know, I didn't check, but if they did, they really screwed things up. No, this is what's this is really interesting. And I, I don't know if this falls under remakes or just interesting facts and tidbits, but um, okay, so first of all, the Saturday evening post story that this was suggested by, we're saying, <laughs> um, there's another silent film, actually, from 1927 called Convoy that was actually based on the story. Um, so I'm curious now to kind of check that out and see how it might compare to this one. Um, the There was a remake of this in, in 92. It was a TV movie. 
I don't, none of the people involved are familiar at all. So I, I just don't think it's one of those things that really gained any traction at all. What's interesting, though, is that this story, because I, and, and honestly, I really believe it's because it has such an interesting psychological exploration of these characters. It's become something that people kind of use to infuse in their own films. This is a really interesting one, Pete. Star I can, I Wars, The Clone Wars, Pete. The TV show, the animated TV show. (laughs) Yes, Star Wars, The Clone Wars. Season two, there's an episode called Senate Spy. And they do do like an almost line-for-line adaptation of this at some points. And even the final frame of the episode is framed the same way as the final frame is done in this film. It, it's it's thematically done very similarly. Now, Likewise, have you watched this recently? Because I know, weren't you doing The Clone Wars? I was doing The Clone Wars. I, I, I got up into season five and then uh, it disappeared from Netflix. So I've been <laughs> unable to, uh, and I wasn't a- unable to return to check it out because of that as well. So I really would have loved to. But weirdly, that like as soon as I read the plot synopsis of that episode, I'm like, I totally remember that. I know exactly what they're talking about. So it is exactly what they did. And so it's interesting. And likewise, Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. Now it's, it's, a, it's a virus. It's not uranium. But they even included some dialogue from Notorious in that film. That's how much the homage was that they were doing. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a an interesting element to kind of throw into other projects. That's I find crazy. it to be uh, intriguing. Yeah, that's just crazy. That's great. I love it. Yeah. Uh, how to do an award season? I hope it won all the awards, Andy. I'd like to say this did win all the awards, Pete. <laughs> I would but... like it. Can we just pretend that you did? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, for for the Academy Awards, it, it had three wins, three other nominations. Again, for the time, it's pretty good. You know. Uh, at, at the Oscars, Claude Rains was, of course, nominated for uh, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, as well he should have been. And Ben Hecht was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Um, you know, that's that's great. I think both of them deserve those nominations. Um, when you look at what they... Um, what they lost against, though, let's see. Uh, well, I can understand it. Claude Rains lost uh, his uh, performance to Harold Russell in the best years of our lives. And that's a tricky one because Harold Russell, you know, he had gone through a lot of the stuff that his character did, losing an arm and all that sort of stuff. I, I guess I can see why maybe that that would be an OK win. As for Ben Hecht, he lost uh, to the Seventh Veil, which I am just not even familiar about or familiar with. So I can't even tell you what I think of that as a choice. Uh, This is the synopsis of The Seventh Veil. One dark summer night, Francesca Cunningham, a once world-famed pianist, escapes from her hospital room and tries to commit suicide by jumping off a local bridge. She is rescued and taken back to the hospital and undergoes psychological treatment by Dr. Larson. Larson desperately wanted to know the events and persons who drove her to this state and help her. He makes Francesca talk about her past, a past with a controlling guardian, Nicholas. No friends, kept apart from the man she loved and forced to practice the piano five to six hours a day well from that i'd pick this film yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh let's see over at uh we're okay so i don't understand what these awards are but there are some awards called the bambi awards 
Have you oh, ever heard of the Bambi Awards? Only that time Bambi went up against Godzilla. <laughs> right. No, actually, uh, the Bambi Awards are a German award. It is a a, a German media award. And uh, this is an award. Weirdly, the statue looks like Bambi, Pete. So you're not <laughs> in, in you're the not... pre Godzilla or post Godzilla state. <laughs> the pre Godzilla. Okay. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but I guess this may show to like how long this film was playing around the world. 1952. So basically, a full five years later or six years later, really, uh, Ingrid Bergman won Best International Actress for her performance in this film. Oh. Uh, at the at the Cannes Film Festival, Alfred Hitchcock was nominated for the uh, grand prize of the festival. Did not win. Um, so it's uh, you know it's one of those films. Didn't really take home much, but um, man, it's a film that sticks with you though, isn't it? God, it really is. It really is. I'm uh, I I found this film just delightful to watch, and I, maybe it was uh, you know giving water to me after spending time in the desert i don't know but it was it was really fun i hope it ages well it was a, a great watch and what's even better about it i will just say if you haven't seen the movie probably should have led with this it is uh a, you know it's fallen into the public domain so even though you can find it you should go get the criterion collection blu-ray if if, if you can't but you can also watch it on youtube and you should because it's probably not going anywhere uh, in spite of take down notices elsewhere they're not they're not going to get this one <laughs> they're not going to take this from me Kappa. yeah although yeah look for look for as nice a copy as you can find though because yeah. it's a good one it's a beautiful image if you have an old palm trio you should try to watch it on that screen that's a 320 320 by wow. what to 180 160 <laughs> you should try to watch it there it'll be a hit and if you could do it in a bathroom stall <laughs> you should do that. How did it do at the box office? Well, Hitchcock's budget dropped from the 1.5 million he had for Spellbound to just 1 million for Notorious. I'm assuming that was the transition from Selznick to RKO. That is about 12.3 million in today's dollars for this one. No idea why the reduction uh, but uh, like I like last time, perhaps he just needed a good Salvador Dali dream sequence that really would have um, given him <laughs> RKO right the motivation the <laughs> to, to give him more money. Uh, the movie did open. Uh, it premiered August fifteenth, nineteen forty-six, uh, in New York. I couldn't find the actual release date, but that's when it premiered. It uh, was a hit. This became the eighth most popular film of the year, earning twenty-four point five million domestically, which is about four hundred sixty-five point seven million in today's dollars. That puts this film at an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost four point five million. A solid success for old Hitch. Unfortunately, and not to put too big a sense of foreboding on things, but it would be the last hit film that Bergman would have in over 10 years. Okay, here's what we need, Salvador. When the wine bottle breaks, we're going to need everybody to go into a uranium-induced fugue state for 27 minutes. <laughs> Can you do that for us? I, I think, that yeah, I'd see, I'd show then up again, for that. Sure. Maybe I don't. The movie's already <laughs> over two hours, right? I mean, why not? Oh, oh geez. <laughs> I think it's time for us to rank it. 
Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, if it's a link there, it'll take you exactly to this movie on flick chart where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, we have Notorious, and this is so fitting, Pete. Notorious or Spellbound? I'd like to open the bidding with Notorious, please, Andy. 100% Notorious. Notorious or Fargo? Mmm. Very curious where you're going to land on this. In fact, I'll begin holding my breath. (laughs) I'm going to go... I'm going to go with Fargo. I'm going to go with Notorious. Hey, wow. I'm proud of you. Yeah. I'm still not changing my vote, but still. (laughs) Here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three, Paper. Wow. Notorious takes it. Mm. Sweet, sweet victory. Uh, That's good. Notorious or Creed? Mm. Here. I think I'll probably go with Notorious. Creed is awfully good. It is awfully good. And you know, I'm a big fan. But I, I think I'm going with Notorious, too. I don't need to tell I'm you, surprised. this movie performed pretty well on my own flick chart. Spoiler! Okay. Notorious <laughs> or All the President's Men, Pete? All the President's Men, Andy. Shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, I feel like I might go with Notorious here. What? I'm know. sorry. Who is this? What podcast is this? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, but I'm okay giving you all the pressure. No, no, no. Hey, it's a principled fight. Let's do it. No, no, no. No, you no, picked already. Late. One, too late. two, nope, too late. three, paper. All the president's men. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all the president's uh, men beats paper again. <laughs> Notorious or nine queens. Wow, I haven't seen that pop up oh. in forever. Wow. And that's a really good one. Yeah. Notorious. Um... Nine queens. One, two, three, scissors. Oh, well. (laughs) All right, ready? Okay. One, One, two, two, three, scissors. Scissors. Crush you. (laughs) Notorious wins. Notorious or Brazil? You know, I'm going to Brazil, Pete. I will go to Brazil with you, Andy. Weirdly, Notorious takes place in Brazil. (laughs) See, we all win. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> notorious or old boy? Uh, here I'm going notorious. Notorious. Notorious or gaslight? Oh, I love these Ingrid Bergman matchups. Uh, I have to go gaslight though. Seriously? No, no. Ooh, man, this is a uh, this is hard. <sighs> I love gaslight for what it was and what it represents, but as movie to movie, having just watched them side by side, I'm notorious. I. I'm pretty wishy-washy here, so I feel like I should give it to you because I really could go either way. Okay. I feel like I want to say Gaslight, but then when I say that, I say I want to go Notorious, and then when I say that, I want to go Gaslight, so I'll I'll never be able to. <laughs> you should just put a fork in it. Yeah. That's... <laughs> All right. Notorious or Casino Royale? I got to go Casino Royale. <sighs> okay. All right. I agree. I love that you're having such difficulties with this, though. Yeah. This yeah, is exciting. No, I've had a hard time. Yeah. Notorious landed one spot above Gaslight. It landed at spot 33, bumping Gaslight down to 34. Uh, I think that's wow. a great spot for Notorious. 33 out of 406. That is a uh, 92% on our chart. 
That's fantastic. How did it do on yours? It wasn't quite as high, but still really high. It was 462 out of 4149, which is an 89% on my chart. That's so funny. Uh, it, as as much as I feel like I even came to the defense of this movie a couple of times there, I still ended up higher on yours. Uh, it's <laughs> oh, hundred and 159 out of 1,089. That's an 85. Uh, and I don't know why. What are you going to do? I don't know. Flick chart. Yeah. Uh, but I chart. but I will tell you, if I go by the algorithm here, it tells me I should be putting this as a four and a half stars uh, elsewhere. I'm not going to do that. It's going to be a five star for me over on letterbox.com slash the next reel. What about you? Yeah, this is a straight up five star film. Uh, this film, I hadn't seen it in a while. I, I was looking forward to revisiting this in my uh, Hitchcock series that I'm doing. And I, uh, but I don't remember it being, I don't remember having quite as much a spell over me um, in the past, but wow, I just was like right there with it. And at the end, when he goes in and, and picks her up and carries her out, I was just like on pins and needles watching it just beautifully done. Yeah. Absolute five star with a heart. God, we didn't even talk about that shot, Andy. That last sequence mm. is amazing. Yeah. It is so ridiculously patient. It is such a struggle to watch him carry and the way they stick with those tight shots face to face to face to face to face is is it's edge of your seat stuff and it's so stupid simple the architecture of that scene is so right. simple and it is he just wrenches every single drop of angst out of it i'm it's incredible Especially because the way that Claude Rains is, you know, he is so nervous yeah. because, he, I mean, he legitimately loved her. And that's what I found yep. so interesting about his character. Like, he legitimately loved her. And then he was totally stabbed in the back, which is great to see how that played out. But then to have all of this, this complexity with her getting poisoned and everything. And now Cary Grant is taking her out of his house with, with it, all of these German people in, downstairs as they're watching. And he's like, what am I going to do? Should I go out with them or should I, you know? as if we're going to the doctor. Uh, it was beautifully done. It is such a beautifully, this is a great example of a psychological uh, like climax. Like mm -hmm. the, you're, there's so much intensity here and all you have is a guy Carrying a woman downstairs. Out of house. Yeah, that's all it is. And, and that, <laughs> the, that Claude Rains has to turn around and go back. It is. Yeah. It just, it's just like the, ripping your heart out of your chest. With the, it's, with the door closing yes. at the end. Oh, oh it's amazing. Man. It's amazing. Yeah. Eat dirt, John Snow. Okay. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Uh, we've, it is now ranked and we're five stars with a heart. And now we're done for a little bit with this movie. We're going to move on to another Bergman. Where do we go from here? We are. We are jumping forward uh, a couple of years. We're going to 1950. This is going to be an interesting uh, uh, kind of next step for our conversation about Ingrid Bergman as an actress. We are leaving kind of this Hollywood period. She she does more films between 1946 when she did this and 1950 when she does Stromboli, which is our next film. But uh, there is this uh, kind of this this period that she does in Italy, there, and it'll be interesting. We'll talk about this more next next week as she kind of goes through this Italian period of her career when she's making films over there. Um, and starting with this film, Stromboli from 1950, directed by Roberto Rossellini. Now, I've not seen this movie. 
I haven't either. Uh, Criterion did release, I think it's three of the five films that Rossellini and Bergman did together over in Italy. It's a, I think it's a, a three-pack that they put out. I'm really curious because, uh, and actually I picked it up from the library just the other day, they actually, for Stromboli, they actually have two versions, the English version and the Italian version, and they're different lengths. So if I have time, I'm going to try to watch both versions so that I can uh, really kind of wrap my head around this project. Well, let me tell you what I'm struggling with. That for all these years, I have thought of Stromboli. I always thought it was an Italian, like, kitchen comedy. (laughs) Well, because of the food? Yeah, yeah. I've just always assumed, I'll get around to it one day. It'll be a fun kind of family movie night, like, of uh, watching period movies. uh, And it takes place probably in a kitchen. It's like Chef, but in Italy. And with Bergman, and it'll be great. It doesn't look as funny. No, this is Italian neorealism. Yeah, this is a. I, this might be our first delve into kind of that that neorealism sense of uh, filmmaking. So, uh, at least with the Italian neorealists. So the, delightful. 50s, so. Yeah, get ready. It's a ride. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. We started with 2008's Iron Man, and now really is the sweet spot. If you haven't started that show, you should start now. We're weeks away from finishing this first movie as I am talking to you right now. And so by the time you catch up to present, you'll be done. And you'll be ready. It's the ultimate perfect binge. And you'll be caught up with everybody else. This is the sweet spot right right now. Don't miss your opportunity. You can support that show and all of our other shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon, where you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon sometimes doeth. Amazon half doeth. We split. We split the vote today, Andy. I'm a regular dangling Chad. <laughs> that's uh, that's what I've always <laughs> called you, Pete. <laughs> I, I went with a common sense media because I was just, first of all, curious. Have any kids seen this movie? Mm. Andy, ah. a kid has seen this movie. One kid. And and you have the proof. I have the proof. <laughs> the internet proof that a oh, child right. has seen Notorious and gives it a five star review. Wow. I want to hang with this child. Are you ready? I, I cannot wait. Pins and needles over here. The mysterious movie that is Notorious still shines today. Notorious is a shockingly spine-tingling take on World War II. It stars Ingrid Bergman as Alicia Huberman, an amazing female character. This movie was so great, 
It's not iffy at all, but I rated it age 11 and up because it's pretty slow in the beginning and not many kids will probably like the first half hour. That all being said, now I can talk about the good parts. Notorious is about Alicia, who has been hired by America to spy on a Nazi leader in Brazil. It's so good, and the ending is even better. Everyone should see Notorious. This movie contains positive role models but also drinking drugs and smoking. And that kid, Andy, is 11 years old. They're they're like, me and above can watch this movie. That's right. Or at least won't be bored by this That's movie. right. That's right. I now wish that I had watched it with my own daughter. You should have watched it with your daughter. Yeah, absolutely hmm. should have. All right. What do you got? Well, Pete, I did not go to the kids. I uh, did not go that route. I uh, Instead, I said, you know what? There has to be somebody over on on uh, on Amazon who gave me a one star review that I could uh, that I could really bring to people because you know we love this movie we like to go opposite so I found yeah. a one star that I think is a good example of uh, people's opinions as to is why it, they don't is it like about the movie. packaging are they complaining about the packaging it, it is not about the packaging but there's plenty this is a one star but review by Joshua Mitchell who says. I don't remember Mr. Grant playing an overweight, vulgar rapper. (laughs) Received the rapper biopic instead of the classic. (laughs) So disappointing. This was bought through a private seller and does not reflect on Amazon or the greatness of the original film of the same title. (laughs) So clearly, this is not the biopic for the Notorious B.I.G. But (laughs) now, now we know. For anybody who was actually secretly hoping that Biggie Smalls actually played the Cary Grant role in his own film, this is not that's not that movie either. (laughs) Although now I'm very curious about people who pick this up thinking this is the biopic. Right. (laughs) I didn't know he's been alive that long. He was around when there were Nazis. (laughs) Oh, Oh. man. Good stuff. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.